Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Glad you could be with us today. Yesterday, the White House announced that President Joe Biden will create a task force to address anti-Semitism and other forms of religious bigotry. This comes after several celebrities, politicians, and other public figures spread anti-Jewish rhetoric. The rapper Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, praised Adolf Hitler on the podcast Infowars earlier this year, and he was recently banned from Twitter for inciting violence after he posted an image of the swastika over the Star of David. Former President Donald Trump also made headlines recently when he had dinner with Ye and Nick Fuentes, who's a prominent white nationalist and a Holocaust denier. Reported anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise. Last year, reports of violence, harassment, and vandalism targeting Jewish people reached an all-time high. That is according to the Anti-Defamation League, which has tracked hate incidents since 1979. And they expect to see similar numbers this year. Today, I have three guests joining me to talk about what is behind this rise in anti-Semitism and what can we do about it. And I definitely want to hear from you. We're taking your phone calls. If you're Jewish, how is the rise in anti-Semitism affecting you? What sticks with you? How do you talk to your family members, friends, children about anti-Semitism? You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651-227-6000. You can also call 800-242-2828. You can tweet me at Angela Davis NPR. Let's bring in our first two guests. We have on the line Pamela Nadell. Pamela is a professor of women's and gender history and the director of the Jewish Studies Program at American University in Washington, D.C. She's currently working on a book about the history of anti-Semitism. Good morning to you, Professor Nadell. Good morning. Thank you for having me join you. We also have... Rabbi Marsha Zimmerman on the line, and Rabbi Zimmerman has been the senior rabbi at Temple Israel in Minneapolis for 20 years now. Good morning to you, Rabbi Zimmerman. Thank you, Angela. Thank you for including me in this important conversation. Absolutely. Thank you both for your time. You know, as I just mentioned in the introduction, the White House uh, announced just yesterday that President Biden uh, planning to create a task force that will address anti-Semitism, other forms of religious bigotry as well. And to me, that action seems to say a lot about the magnitude of the problem, but also maybe reveal a sense of urgency as well. Uh, Rabbi Zimmerman, what did you think when you first heard about this? Well, I applaud the administration for addressing hate crimes and anti-Semitism in particular. There was a summit at the White House that was very crucial and important earlier this fall. I think it's um, it's very important because anti-Semitism um, has been built by people and used by people for specific purposes and one who promotes anti-Semitism relies on division and fear for power, and that affects all of us. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, no one has time for division and fear right now. I mean, Professor Nadell, what about you when, when you heard about the president's action that, that this is going to get more attention, more focus? What did you think? Uh, like Rabbi Zimmerman, I applauded the president's decision. And I was also, as a historian, I was also struck because I I know of eras in the American past when there have been people who are anti-Semitic who have been part of the government in the United States, 
and how this also sent a signal to us that this is not one of those countries where the national government embraces anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. which has been a factor in, in the past around the world. Mm. And Rabbi Zimmerman, you know, how, how are you making sense of all of this, this rise in anti-Semitism um, as a faith leader? Because we know people come to you for counsel, for advice. What are you hearing uh, from, from members of your congregation here in the Twin Cities? And, and what are they asking you? I, I think so much of what people are concerned about in the Jewish community, I do a lot of interfaith work as well. So I kind of want to speak about it a little bit from both perspectives. Mm-hmm. The Jewish community is very concerned and very afraid. We, we've been here before, and there's a real fear as the rise of anti-Semitism increases that in a time of, you know, uncertainty. We've just had a pandemic that is historic, mm-hmm. and the professor can talk about it more than I can. A, a, a possibility, a, a economic downturn, potentially, all of these are fertile ground for anti-Semitism and for hate and fear all around to find simple answers to complex issues. So I think my community is very concerned about that because historically, we've actually seen this show before. I think the Mm -hmm. other piece is the interfaith community and the interfaith community that I'm a part of, um, Christians, Muslims, um, people who are a very diverse background, there's a confusion often. Like, what is anti-Semitism? What is it mean to use that word versus anti-Jewish? There's a lot of questions and not a lot of places to turn. So I'm often glad that I'm at the table as a Jewish voice to help answer the questions, to help people navigate this increase in hate. And Professor Nadell, in addition to teaching courses uh, about Jewish uh, culture and, and, and the faith and writing a book about the history of anti-Semitism, you're a Jewish person. And so how are you processing all of this? So I, as, as Rabbi Zimmerman said, I, it is impossible to be a Jewish person in the United States today and not be deeply concerned about anti-Semitism. And what I'm actually writing a book about is the history of um, anti-Semitism in the United States, because as Rabbi Zimmerman said, people do not know the story, the long, long history over more than 350 years of how anti-Semitism has played out in America. You know, we tend to know the story of the Holocaust because that's taught, and perhaps Mm -hmm. even in Minnesota, it's required that students learn about the Holocaust. But the Holocaust happened a long time ago, and it happened across the ocean. And it did not affect American Jews the way the contemporary anti-Semitism is impacting them. And so, you know, what can you tell us that you feel is really important that people should know about the the origins of anti-Semitic beliefs? The origins of anti-Semitic beliefs predate the birth of Christianity, but of of course they take a new form with the charge in the Gospels that the Jews were responsible for for deicide, for killing Christ, and that the Jews are people that worship in the synagogue of Satan. And then across the ages, the Jews are targeted. Um, uh, The church fathers say they should be allowed to 
live but not to thrive. And it's not until we get to the modern period that Jews are let out of the ghettos and that they become members of the society, that they enter, they become full citizens of their states. But anti-Semitism, which is actually a word that was only coined in 1879, was coined to explain a modern, recent hatred of the Jews that was not based on the Christian ideas. Instead, it was based on the fact that the Jews are purportedly a different race. And, and Rabbi Zimmerman, I want to know more, you know, about the conversations that are happening um, within families. And and what is your knowledge? You know, how do how do elders in Jewish families talk to uh, young adults or, or children? about what is happening in their world, about anti-Semitism? So um, I, I think that there are a variety of things I want to say. And one is that um, I would actually look at anti-Semitism beginning in the book of Exodus. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. maybe that's more of the, the rabbi in me, where Joseph was the right hand of Pharaoh because he saved the entire region and the Egyptian people from hunger, seven years of plenty and seven years of sparseness. And so Joseph, um, our patriarch, was considered to be the one who saved a nation and saved a region. And then he dies and a pharaoh arises who knew not Joseph and brings the Israelite people into servitude, into slavery. And so um, for me, anti-Semitism, you know, is, is confusing for so many people, even for Jewish people, because if you take the snapshot of Joseph as the right hand of you say, wow, the Israelite people are so powerful. Look at they're the right hand of the most powerful person in the mm-hmm. land. But you have to spread your, your lens to what happens afterwards. And that is a going into servitude, into slavery, is part of that anti-Semitism. So mm-hmm. the Jewish community, the Israelite community, often have access to economic, political Um, pedagogic power for a particular moment in time. You can look at Germany before World War II. And there is this moment where then they, we (laughs) are blamed by both the powerful and the powerless because we're in that middle place. And I think it's helpful for the Jewish community to understand because they're like, wait a minute, It doesn't feel like there's anti-Semitism, but it's so scary out there. How do we understand it? How do we define it? How do we see it today? And I think it's always this interesting place that the Jewish community holds sort of a middle ground so that when the um, time is ripe, an economic downturn, a pandemic, then from both sides, the Jewish community can be blamed. And so the, this, you use the word confusion. So the, this confusion and lack of education uh, about this religion and the culture and the history, is this all playing a role in some of the bad and the dangerous behavior that we see, Rabbi Zimmerman? Well, I think that um, I don't know whether hatred is misinformation <laughs> or mm-hmm. ignorance. I would love if that was true. I think um, I spent much of my youth believing that. I'm not sure 
because it feels like, at least in this moment in time, that there are leaders, politicians, um, you know, famous people who are using this division to promote fear in order to gain power themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. not about ignorance. That's about something more. And Professor Nadell, um, when you think about, you know, this dramatic increase in, in, in incidents, um, what do you think is behind it? And and I really want to know, like, what is up with the celebrities, the people in the entertainment industry in Hollywood, New York City, getting caught up and with these insensitive and awful remarks? Is, is it a strategy? Is, is it for power? What do you think? I think there are three paramount factors that have caused the increase in anti-Semitism in our day. I think first, we're dealing with the political polarization in our country. Um, we're dealing with uh, a nation that um, a significant portion of the, of the population um, has embraced conspiracy theories. And then we have the new technologies of social media. And they, they've coalesced to allow for the dissemination of anti-Semitism in striking ways. And, for example, the media figures that you're referring to, the figures in, in sports and popular culture and politics who are engaged in spreading anti-Semitism, they're doing it through the new technologies, right? They're doing it on Twitter. They're doing it on various forms of social media. Mm -hmm. And bottom line, anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory. I mean, as, as Rabbi Zimmerman was describing, it, it's, it's this idea that Jews ha somehow are behind the scenes exercising extraordinary power over the entire world to suit their particular purposes, and and since we are we have so many conspiracy theories that are widespread at this moment, from the idea that the election was stolen to the idea that there are groups in Washington D.C. that are using children for um, nefarious purposes, mm -hmm. that this is they've just glommed onto that conspiracy theory. I want to uh, make sure we uh, take some phone calls from our listeners as we talk about this. We're talking about anti-Semitism and a rise in harassment and violence against Jewish people. Taking your phone calls as I talk with two guests, if you are Jewish, how is the rise in anti-Semitism affecting you? What sticks with you? How do you talk to your friends and family about anti-Semitism? You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Let's take a phone call right now in St. Paul. Uh, is this Alyssa or Eliza who's on the phone? It's Alisa. Alisa. <laughs> Alisa, thank you for calling. What do you want to share with us? So um, I'm an author. I just came out with a book that explores anti-Semitism in uh, the Twin Cities. And I'm Jewish myself. I was raised out in a suburb here, and it took me doing research to figure out that Minnesota, in particular Minneapolis, was the most anti-Semitic city in the country in the 1940s. And what was interesting beyond just that was that as a Jewish person myself, I didn't know about this. Mm -hmm. So there is something about the fear that Jewish people have about telling their story too loudly, because mm. I think my own opinion is to tell our story a little too loudly means bad attention. Mm -hmm. But unless we tell our story, we won't feel seen. 
And this is quite a a dilemma for Jewish people. Mm. Uh, a good point uh, Elisa is making. Uh, Rabbi Zimmerman, we know that Jews make up about 1% of Minnesota's population. So how does having such a, a small community uh, here in our state um, affect what anti-Semitism might look like in, in Minnesota? And maybe the percentage is higher when we look just at the Twin Cities. Well, I think um, Elisa brings up a, a very important historic fact, and that is we are in Minneapolis. My congregation um, faces Hennepin Avenue. It is a place where the uh, matriarchs and patriarchs of this congregation, if I could just express some pride of their courage, in 1928, creating a front of this synagogue that says this should be a house of prayer for all peoples, an Isaiah quote, and that the idea that the facade looks like the Lincoln Memorial because there's a belief in religious freedom. And so they expressed it loudly, clearly, with great respect. And we are um, over 140 years old and have always understood our role as expressing Jewish pride, as expressing Jewish education to our interfaith partners, and being a Jewish voice in the city of Minneapolis. And I think those are the ways that we can provide great respect and pride. And for me, that's what I'm hearing from my congregation, from the Jewish community worldwide. You are on the forefront, and we thank you for doing that work. But we can't, I can't, let's put it this way, I can't be afraid. Mm. Because if I am, then I'm giving much power to those who promote anti-Semitism, and I'm not doing the active work of dismantling the machine of anti-Semitism, which is not just about Jews, because it begins there, but Black, Brown in communities, the 10th generation or newcomers, all of the communities, LBGTQIA community, everybody gets swept into this and we get divided, which is the most dangerous outcome of hatred is that like-minded people get divided and we need to stand together. And uh, Professor Nadel, as, as you work on this book that you're writing about the history of anti-Semitism in the U.S., uh, what differences have you found uh, when you look at the Midwest compared to the East Coast or the West Coast or larger metropolitan areas where you're going to have a much larger population of Jewish people? That's that's an excellent question. What we know is that, for example, in the 1920s and 1930s, that Detroit was a hotbed of anti-Semitism. First in the 1920s, Henry Ford starts publishing some of the conspiracy theories that I was talking about before, but he disseminates it through his newspaper, The Dearborn Independent, and it, it, its circulation reaches over 700,000, which makes it one of the largest circulation newspapers in the United States at that time. And then when we move to the 1930s, we have the radio preacher, Father Charles Coughlin, also from Detroit, and he is broadcasting all sorts of forms of hate on his radio show, which is tuned in to by millions of Americans in a time when we don't have so many diverse avenues for getting our information. And 
he actually argues that the Jews deserved the persecution they were undergoing in Germany. So we have the Midwest has long been, as Elisa was saying, um, has long had hot spots of anti-Semitism. I want to take a phone call as we talk about what is happening and with this rise of 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 you know hateful words as well as actions against people who are Jewish. What do you want to talk about? What do you want to hear us talk about? And what are your questions about anti-Semitism? If you are Jewish, how is the rise in anti-Semitism affecting you? Give us a call at 651-227-6000. I want to take a phone call right now from Mankato, where Elizabeth is on the phone. Elizabeth, thank you for waiting. And what do you want to share with us? Well, I um, used to live in the cities, and I actually had an opportunity to work at Temple Israel with Rabbi Zimmerman. And and even though I'm a Christian, I was so welcomed by that community and and the the people who worshipped there, who worked there. And um, as a Christian, I just think those who live and operate in spaces of power need to stand up against religious intolerance and hate. And we we really need to stand up um, and say that the United States is a nation based on religious freedom and that we have no time and no patience for hate and discrimination and, you know, violence towards anyone who worships differently than we do. And it, it's so important to recognize that there are vibrant, lovely worship traditions and people who follow them and and religious experiences out there that differ from our own, and that doesn't need to be scary, and we need to support everyone in their own religious Mm -hmm. experience. That's Elizabeth calling in from Mankato. And Rabbi Zimmerman, um, I'm curious, what does stand up against hate? What does that look like? How do people who are not Jewish show um, their support for the Jewish community? How how do we do our part to address anti-Semitism? Thank you for that question. I think that is very powerful. I think there are a couple of ways. One is to be in conversation in an interfaith arena, because so often um, there is not a total understanding when you're part of a majority culture and you don't really know someone who's Jewish. And I think that knowing someone who's Jewish and sharing your traditions and being open to those of us who worship differently, who celebrate different holidays, and to open our homes, our hearts, our places of of religious experience, churches, mosques, synagogues, to one another is the best way to find common ground, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that is very important. I think that when there is a question then, that relationship, you know, everything for me is relationships, relationships, relationships. So when something happens out in the world, you have a trusted friend to turn to and say, well, what what does this mean? What is this all about? Um, And I think that helps 
build a coalition. I think there's also the reality of um, the people who are using terms that are full of hate and um, pointing fingers at any community for a solution to, in some ways, provide hate to solve a major social issue is a question. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand what you're saying. Instead of letting it go, even just asking some questions. I I often like to say to people, can you unpack that for me? I'm not (laughs) sure I understand Mm -hmm. what you're saying. And boy, you know, either they Mm -hmm. really expose the hate or they begin to talk in circles or, you know, they themselves start questioning. So I I think that's just being in conversation. And um, I think in Minnesota, particularly, (laughs) uh, we have this kind of moving away or um, not wanting to confront. And it does not, that is not a solution. And what is the harm? Again, what is the harm of not engaging, not not choosing to understand or not acknowledging that anti-Semitism is a problem? Well, um, you know, denying reality never works well for us. And it is, there are secrets that we keep in our very DNA for families, and it never does work for us if we want to even take it to the most granular situation. Confronting it, always talking about it, struggling through it is always the answer. It's always the healing. It's always the transformation. And look, hate has gotten oxygen in the last years here in our country, and we need to deprive it of its oxygen. It cannot live. It is human created, and the solution is in our hands. And we're also talking with Rabbi Marsha Zimmerman, the senior rabbi at Temple Israel in Minneapolis. Uh, been the senior rabbi there for 20 years now. And right now, we can bring in another guest. We've got Yair Rosenberg on the line. And Yair is a writer at The Atlantic. He writes the Deep Shtetl newsletter. And this is a newsletter that covers the intersection of politics, culture, and religion. He is joining us. Uh, good morning to you, Yair. Good morning. Hi. And tell me again, where are you joining us from? New York. You're in New York. Okay. So tell us about this, um, some of the writing you've been doing for The Atlantic and, and how many people just really don't understand anti-Semitism. I know that you once wrote this. You wrote, unlike many other bigotries, anti-Semitism is not merely a social prejudice. It is a conspiracy theory about how the world operates. We've been talking a little bit about that. Tell us more about that. Sure. I I think when a lot of people think about anti-Semitism, they think about it like um, everyday social prejudices, which means, you know, there are some people out there who say, I don't like Jewish people. I don't like black folks. I don't like Muslims. That sort of thing. And that's mm-hmm. real uh, and certainly applies to Jews. Uh, but anti-Semitism has a very different component uh, that is less well understood, but extremely influential in the real world, which is the conspiratorial element, the way it manifests as a conspiracy theory to explain the entire world and all the problems in it. Uh, what I mean by that is that there are people out there who believe that there are uh, sinister groups of Jews who uh, pull the strings behind society and are responsible for you know, economic, political, and social problems. Um, and that 
is what often results in the sort of violence that we see on the ground. When somebody, you know, when when massacred Jews in the Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue, uh, he was angry because he thought Jews were behind the influx of brown people into America. And as a white supremacist, this made him very mad. Uh, When uh, some years later, um, an Islamic extremist took a synagogue hostage in Texas, um, he was trying to get some rabbis to flee a prisoner, a federal prisoner. He made the rabbi of the Texas synagogue call the rabbi of a New York synagogue who was supposed to get this person out of jail. Now, of course, Jews don't control the prison system and certainly not their rabbis. Uh, but again, if you think Jews are behind everything, then this begins to make sense. Um, and the thing about a conspiracy theory is that you don't have to have a particular ideology or religion or anything, as we've seen, to, to sign up for it. You just have to have a conspiratorial mindset, the idea that there's sort of a simple solution to a lot of problems and that there's basically one scapegoat upon which you can pin it. And if you're that sort of person and you're looking for that in a difficult and dangerous world, um, it's very easy to land on the Jews because this has been going on. This sort of conspiracy theorizing about Jews has been going on for centuries. So you're like one Google search away from starting with the question of who is behind the problems to finding that the Jews are behind those problems. And so, yeah, there have been uh, so many uh, recent incidents, um, high profile incidences lately of celebrities and, and politicians spreading um, anti-Semitic rhetoric. So what do you think is going on there? And, 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 and does it, it really feels like it, this is now moving into the mainstream. Yeah, so we've seen, you know, President, former President Trump sit down with uh, Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. These are two people who have expressed very publicly uh, quite anti-Semitic views. Um, and we've heard other public figures, athletes, cultural figures, recently and over the years, voice these sorts of sentiments. Um, to an extent, some of this, I think, uh, is new, or at least some of the, the nature of it being out in public is new, that people are less ashamed about it. Uh, but to an extent, I think people... These, these sorts of views aren't new. If you look at, you know, FBI hate crime statistics uh, in the United States ever since they started keeping track, uh, Jews have always been the number one target of anti-religious bias crimes um, mm-hmm. in the United States, more than all other religious groups combined. Um, and that speaks to a certain undercurrent of anti-Semitism that's been going on for a long time. I think social media, in some senses, has allowed us to, to see it and to hear it from people who we otherwise wouldn't have. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of your uh, listeners may be familiar that there was a controversy over Kyrie Irving uh, on the Brooklyn Nets when he shared a sort of anti-Semitic video on social media. And then there was, you know, a suspension and then an apology. It was a very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but imagine like, you know, 20 years ago, if you're Kyrie Irving, people know that you're an amazing basketball player, but they, people don't know that you, have, that you don't have Instagram. Right. right. So you might have seen this or you know thought about it or thoughtlessly shared it without thinking about it um, today. But back then, you didn't have that sort of platform where millions of people might be getting this sort of unfiltered instantly from you. Um, and it's the sort of thing that probably we wouldn't have heard about. Um, and probably that would have been better, better for everyone concerned, for Kyrie and for us. Um, and I think so social media has sort of changed because we have this window into a lot of people's heads and celebrities that we follow because they're amazingly accomplished in one particular way. But they might not know very much about you. Right. Or they might have some, you know, blind spots about different minority groups. Uh, but now we know. <laughs> right. Now we see it in a way that perhaps back then we wouldn't have. All right. Yeah. I want you to hold on for a moment because I want to bring in a phone call from a listener. And I think maybe you can help her uh, with a question that she has. Uh, in Duluth, we have Nancy on the phone. And Nancy, go ahead with your question or your comment about anti-Semitism. Yes. Thank you so much for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I am a retired clergy. I have a lot of I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood and <clears throat> I just loved it. And so I, I, I am so confused with knowing um, Jewish, you know, Hebrew and Jewish um, teachings and Christian that if anybody has um, 
um, <clears throat> the right to share with um, Jews, it would be blacks, because I think I remember, Mar- you know, the Martin Luther King marches, and the songs and the spirituals were derived from getting out of Egypt. You know, we, we want to get out of Egypt. We want to be free. So I cannot figure out where the black community is now coming in and, and um, telling, you know, people that Jews are the enemy. I, I would I just really would like to know where that um, sprung up, because if anybody shared, um, <clears throat> you know, slavery and rejection and um, pun- and uh, punishment over the thousands of years, it was slaves and Jews. You know? So, Nancy, just- you're referring to some of the high-profile incidents we're talking about, as in Kanye West or... Yeah, yes, he's known now, as well as uh, uh, Kyrie Irving and Dave Chappelle has also received some criticism recently. So three black men. And so, uh, Yair, interesting question. What can you tell us about what is this relationship or what do you think we're seeing now with some prominent uh, black folks and uh, anti-Semitism? Well, the first thing I want to say is that I'm barely qualified to speak out of the Jewish community, let alone to speak about or for the black community. Um, but what I do say when I talk about the Jewish community is it's always very important to understand that uh, this is, these are big simplifications because Jews are extremely diverse. This is one of the things that anti-Semitism takes away from Jews. Mm-hmm. It makes us into all one thing, usually all one bad thing, right? And uh, we often do this to minorities. We class them into mendacious monoliths. Um, and the fact is, you know, people are very, there's not one Jewish community, there's many elements in the Jewish community, and they're not always in agreement on things. Um, and so, of course, we have seen certain members of the black community uh, say anti-Semitic things, but we've also seen many members of the black community aghast, right, at these sorts of things, speak yes. out in the other direction. And I always want to make sure that we talk about all these communities in the same way. I do think there's, uh, there's a very, you know, powerful point that was made in, the, in this call, which is that there is a, a, a lot of shared experience between uh, the Jewish community and the black community. There's a lot of uh, opportunities for people to sort of uh, understand and learn from each other. I think it, it, when you have disconnects, it often has to do with the fact that people haven't had those conversations. Um, and both communities haven't really heard the other stories. Um, and it's, you know, it's, you, you, you think, oh, maybe it's, it's, how could that happen? But really, you know, for example, Jews, it's been mentioned, they're 1%, you said, I think, of, uh, Here in Minnesota. Uh, of uh, Minnesota, mm-hmm. I think it was. Um, you're 2% of the entire United States, 0.2% of the world, right? So there's just so few Jews around. And, you know, people will recall the Holocaust, there's a, good, there's a reason why there are so few Jews. Um, and it means that it's very hard for people to meet a Jewish person. And the most they usually learn about them is from, say, the Internet or television or stereotypes that they receive culturally. And that can lead to a lot of misunderstandings and misapprehensions about who Jews are. Mm. Um, and I think it goes in, uh, you know, in other directions as well. Like Jews may not have had the interactions with the, the black community to uh, you know, fully understand and appreciate their stories and the reasons why they uh, are, you know, sometimes have grievances with the Jewish community, uh, because you can't really work on or dispel those grievances right, if you don't understand them. Um, and so the, the, the constructive thing that can come out of all of this can be that people realize we do have a conversation to have and to have conversations like the one we're having on this program. And I've, mm-hmm. you know, as you imagine, given the things I write about, I'm often now asked to have these conversations and I'm always glad to have them. I and you'll say, you don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. There is, uh, Rabbi Zimmerman, uh, a lot of confusion. The word confusion keeps coming up. What are you hearing and what we're hearing from our, our listeners yeah. and from, from Yair? So I think um, one of the things I want to make really perfectly clear to the caller and to everyone on this show is that 20% of the Jewish community is of color. Mm-hmm. So there we have black are Jews. Black Jews. <laughs> and I think it's really important for us to recognize 
that um, what Mr. Rosenberg just said, and that is that that anti-Semitism um, robs us of that diversity that somehow we're pit against a different community. And conspiracy theory, unfortunately, we all are susceptible. We have to fight against it. And I think using conspiracy theory to promote power and divide is part of the country we are living in. And we can't I deny the fact that that is our reality today. And so how do we counteract it? How do we work against it is what we need to do. And that is about building coalitions with people who are like-minded, who are fighting this division and, um, and conspiracy theories. We know historically those people who work together, those are the stories we remember in the most um, horrific historic times. It's the stories of connecting. It's the stories of working against and fighting hatred and division. Those are the stories that survive history. And I want to be on that side of history. Mm-hmm. Professor Nadell, anything you would add to what we've been hearing about, uh, you know, diversity within Jewish people and cons- conspiracy theories? I I think very important to remember that the Jewish community is extremely diverse, as we've been hearing, that that there's often um, it's said that, you know, if you have two Jews, you have three opinions. And <laughs> and but what we have with anti-Semitism, as Yair and Rabbi Zimmerman have said, is we we have this collapsing of the Jewish community into some kind of monolithic entity, which it does does not exist. Let's take another phone call as we talk about the rise in anti-Semitism in Duluth. We have Danny on the phone. Danny, what do you want to tell us? Hi there. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, it, it, this was, what is it, almost two years ago uh, when um, Rabbi Citrin Walker, who was actually a, a childhood friend of mine uh, from back in Michigan, was held hostage with some congregants at his synagogue in Texas. Um, mm. Something really hit home for me about the that I think over the last generation, we've become a lot more removed from um, you know, the Holocaust and, and the sort of, you know, we, when we grew up, most of my friends, including myself, had grandparents who came here to escape Nazi persecution. And we often had, um, you know, Holocaust survivors speak in our synagogues. And there was very much an aspect of living history in that story. And we're now at a point where this is now something in the history books. And so I think for me as a Jewish person, I've allowed myself to become a little bit more removed from the, you know, very recent reality of of that level of persecution based on my identity. Um, and so when the incident happened uh, with, you know, with Rabbi Citrin Walker, it sort of hit home again that, you know, this really isn't that far away from me as a Jewish person. Um, you know, this type of, uh, I guess the, that anti-Semitism is alive and real. Um, you know, another incident when the Pittsburgh shooting happened, I was at synagogue teaching in our religious school at the time when that occurred. And so uh, I guess it's just a reminder for me that, you know, this is something that we still face. Um, and I, I also like to caution my Jewish friends that when we talk about anti-Semitism, it should not pull away from conversations about race and, you know, colonialism and all these other things in our society, but that we still need to be mindful that this exists and affects mm-hmm. our lives. So. It's all connected. Thank you. That's Danny and Duluth calling in. Let's take a phone call in Bloomington. Rebecca's on the line. Rebecca, thank you for waiting. And what did you want to share? Hi, um, I I think I just wanted to kind of echo what Danny was saying. Um, I grew up in a predominantly Jewish 
city in Brookline, and um, it was my parents came from Russia. They escaped religious persecution. My grandparents escaped religious persecution. And, you know, I, I think just understanding the sort of ubiquitousness of anti-Semitism and having that be um, an ever-present force is hard. But, I mean, right now it seems like there's an uptick. And the thing that's hard for me is that it's very much um, – it's it's hard to watch people give a lot of excuses as far as, you know, hearing – hearing Kanye West when people make excuses for him, like, you know, well, he's unwell and that's why he's saying those things. And it seems like, you know, people are very quick to pathologize, um, you know, things that are going on and making excuses for why someone is spouting anti-Semitic rhetoric. And then the other thing that was really hard for me personally was just Kyrie Irving is currently the vice president of the players union in the NBA. And, Almost none of the other basketball players spoke out when he said something mm-hmm. and kind of was spouting anti-Semitic rhetoric. And how do you how do you combat that when nobody is willing to stand up? None of your peers are. And then how does you know when you when you kind of give this this idea that there's this invisible Jew who's controlling everything? How do you fight against that? It's just it's incredibly disheartening and very hurtful. And it is. I think, as Danny said, it's a it's a it's a reminder that it's you know it's an ever present force. Thank you. That's Rebecca calling in from Bloomington. And uh, Rabbi Zimmerman, as a faith leader, you can clearly hear the pain and anguish that she uses the word disheartening. You can hear it in her voice. Mm-hmm. Well, Danny and Rebecca, you could have been on this panel. Um, you spoke so beautifully and profoundly about the heart part, the broken heart of the Jewish community that often feels alone when it comes to anti-Semitism. And that is a a piece that's hard. We often feel like we are our only advocates um, and that there is this kind of divide because people don't totally understand anti-Semitism because the European Jews that came here at the turn of the century in the 1960s could put Um, Caucasian as our race. And so we have been included in that in this country since 1960s, but it wasn't before that. And so I think that um, we have, at least those of us who come from Eastern Europe or Western Europe have gotten white skin privilege. And so there's often this question about, well, are the Jews really, you know, in need of support? They're so powerful, even though there's so few of them. It's, again, the anti-Semitic trope and also kind of what has happened in this country in our own history. And so it gets complicated, but it's extremely hurtful when people don't stand up. It's what I was saying before. Mm-hmm. It's like ignoring it is not the answer ever. It will not go away. And trust me, um, it, it just begins with the Jewish community. It does not end with the Jewish community. And so I think that those coalitions are essential, but I hear the heartache and the broken heart of those of us who often feel like we 
aren't that our allies don't always stand up. Mm. And Yair, how do you describe when we talk about, you know, the harm or the impact on people who are Jewish and what happens when, when something is said or done and, and no one reacts? What could you add to that? So I, I cover Jews and prejudice towards Jews, but I've also always covered um, minority religious communities, among other things. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, every community at moments feels exactly this way. Um, and I think that sometimes it can help us to think of a time when we felt abandoned and we felt people weren't seeing um, what we were feeling and what we were experiencing. Um, and I'm wary of uh, putting these things in competition because my, I know too well, especially as a journalist who purposely tries to report on stories that aren't told, right, and, and raise up voices that aren't always heard, right, that lots of people have this experience. And it includes Jews, but it includes many others. Um, and we can try to be more attentive to those things. Um, and I also think that the, the number one thing people can do in these situations is actually, right now we're having this conversation about anti-Semitism, unfortunately because bad things have happened in the public culture uh, that are anti-Semitic. Uh, but attention moves on, right? Just as we've seen with Black Lives Matter and other things where something happens and there's this moment when society is interested in hearing about this issue. And then naturally, this is how attention works, right? We move on to the next thing, right? The world continues. Um, but in the moment of attention, are we making ourselves wiser? Are we building connections? Are we making ourselves better so that the next one of these moments is less likely to happen? Or if it does, that our response is better. And I think that's something we can all be thinking about. And Professor Nadell, you, you've spoken in other interviews about anti-Semitism during the, the period between World War One and World War War II. Uh, some historians have called that period the high tide of American anti-Semitism. And I'm wondering, what do you think this time now, 2021, 2022, how is that going to be looked at or recorded in the history books? I won't be around to rename it, but I think <laughs> that this period is going to be called the high tide of American anti-Semitism, and that we will have to come up with a new name for the period between World War One and World War Two, because of the level of violence, because of the attacks that are happening daily around the world, um, the orth- Orthodox Jews, Jews who, who are visibly seen as Jewish because they wear a particular um, clothing, are endangered on the streets of our major cities. They are open to attack. And I I think this is going to be the high tide. And Rabbi Zimmerman, we just have uh, about 30 seconds left here. Any final comments for everyone who's listening across Minnesota today? Well, I guess for me to offer a bit of a prayer that I hope and pray that we all find the strength to make this moment one of healing and transformation and working together, that we don't miss this opportunity to educate and to find the communities that we can bond together to fight hate and anti-Semitism and all hatred. I want to thank our guests and our callers today. As our time has come to a close, we've been talking with Rabbi Marsha Zimmerman there, the senior rabbi at Temple Israel in Minneapolis, as well as Professor Pamela Nadell uh, there at American University in Washington, D.C. She's writing a book about the history of anti-Semitism. And we also got some time with Yair Rosenberg there, a writer at The Atlantic, who writes The Deep Shtetl, which is a newsletter and covers the intersection of politics, culture, and religion. This conversation today was produced by Samantha Matsumoto. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.